0: Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI.
1: We host in depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps.
0: Tune in to get real life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. We are back with another episode of MLops Live. I'm Sabine, your host, joined by co-host Stephen. This is an interactive Q and A session, as always, with our guest today, Danny Lebson. Danny is an MLOps architect at Y Labs at the moment. He has an educational background in statistics and political science, and he has professional experience in data science as a solutions architect and uh, a senior field engineer. So, Danny, welcome to the show. Anything further you'd like to add to your introduction?
2: No, I think that was a great introduction and um... I'm shocked at how well you pronounced my last name without having to ask me how to pronounce it.
0: Well, thank you. I may have done a little bit of research on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you do it a little bit, good. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so just to warm you up here a little bit, how would you, to our guests, explain ML observability in, in one minute?
2: I don't think that I even need a full minute to explain what ML observability is, but you can start the timer. So ML observability is the ability to view the entirety of a machine learning system in order to root cause and debug issues in that machine learning system. I don't know. What was that like? 10, 10, 15 seconds, right? Um, That's the the basic overview.
1: Yeah.
0: Succinct, concise. We're happy.
1: Thanks, Danny, for that succinct introduction, I would say, with uh, just giving us that very concise definition of ML observability. And we have some premeditated questions from both from the community and as well as some of the ones we sourced. And I think one of the crucial ones we need to get started is with, which is very, very crucial for reasonable skill teams to think about is, uh, when is the best time to start thinking about ML observability in your opinion?
2: Yesterday. like (laughs) Uh, In terms of the the model development lifecycle, I would say that you have to have observability when you deploy a machine learning model. And then Mm -hmm. you need to start thinking about it ahead of time, right? Because you need to think about how you're going to be instrumenting, how you're going to be getting to machine learning observability before you deploy the model into production.
1: So because usually when I usually when some teams talk about this thing they feel like you need to have, have observability both in like uh, your training phase you know detecting root causes and like training failures as well as production phase and in most cases when you hear MLOps observability you hear everything post deployment so it's very crucial we need to understand when to start thinking about it in that in that case awesome so i would love to ask again how should i model my you know monitoring and observability system for for any ML project I'm doing, are there strategies I need to know? Because if we look at the software engineering space, there are mostly strategies you use for like your DevOps monitoring, right? Your, whether it's your integration monitoring systems or things like that. But in the MLF space, since it's nascent, things like this have to be uh, considered because they yeah, are like diverse use cases, right? And you know, so what, how would you think that? Uh, how would you expect that? Uh, how would you recommend that? Uh, a team think about modeling their uh, observability system whenever you know they are working on ML projects. How to think about it? How to think about building the observability system into their projects?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say to me, the the top priorities for an observability system are that mm-hmm. they need to give you continuous monitoring. So you, you need to be able right. to constantly keep track and detect any kind of changes in the system it needs to be complete so it right. needs to give you a view of the entire system you know a lot of people really focus on monitoring the model and we can totally dive deeper into that with you know like data drift detection and model performance mm-hmm. degradation detection but ultimately in order to do the kind of root causing that we're talking about in order to really debug problems with machine learning systems you need to look not only at the model but at the the system as a whole which means like the entire data pipeline before it even hits the model So I would say that those are are two really big considerations to make when thinking about how you're going to be instrumenting and and tooling your observability solution for your machine learning models in prod.
1: Right. Awesome. And then, you know, one of the biggest pushbacks, I would say, with uh, the old MLOps space is that you know, vendors are like building tools for like the 1% of the people, right? Or the 2% of the people solving problems. And, you know, with ML, there are like different use cases. You're solving computer vision use cases, NLP use cases, you know, classification use cases, however. So how do you start building a system that works across these different use cases as a reasonable skilled team? So um, we're like four data scientists or maybe two data scientists and one software engineer. We're deploying like 10, 15 models or probably even lesser than that. You know, how do we start building a system that integrates these different use cases, ranging from like computer vision to machine translation and everything, into one system that we can have good oversight on the entire projects.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I'm trying to figure out how to how to answer your question while uh-huh. avoiding just like directly selling my product. But I yeah. I uh-huh. honestly think that like for a a small team that's dealing with, especially like you're saying, a diversity of use cases, right. having a single pane of glass where you can monitor all of your models and where you can see the performance of all of those models. And importantly, you can use the same UI to do debugging is really important. And one of the things that really stands out to me about y Labs in particular as an observability and monitoring solution is the self-serve capabilities. The fact that like to try out and to use Y-Labs in production, you never need to talk to anybody on the team. You can just go on our website, start using the product. It's $50 per model per month, which is a lot cheaper than, you know, hiring a machine learning engineer or a data scientist. And it scales really easily from the smallest team to the largest team. So yeah, I, I would say, you know, if you're open to a vendor-based solution, then I think going with like a, a an easy to deploy self-serve tool is really low-hanging fruit and a very lightweight way to get a lot of lift. The other option that I would say is regardless of what type of model that you have, the majority of use cases are on supervised learning, right? Like it's, you're either doing classification or regression, whether it's like a, you know, an NLP model or a computer vision model or a tabular model, you're usually going to be doing some kind of supervised learning in production. And with that in mind, you can kind of, treat these models, uh, you can abstract these models and find the commonalities between them. So, you know, all models effectively are a form of data transformation. You take some input data and you produce a an end result. You produce like a prediction. So you can monitor that input data uh, and you can detect data drift, uh, data quality issues, all of those. And then you can also watch for changes in, in the output. And even if you don't have ground truth, even if you don't, you know, know the actual performance of your model because you're right. not able to check the predictions against the real world, just watching for changes on the input data and on the output data uh, can can be pretty easy to do.
1: Yeah. And just just before going to the community, we have some other questions. I think that are specific to uh, some of these metrics we should be sort of monitoring. Uh, I think beyond model evaluation, you know, all those things like you know, your like you said, it's mostly supervised. Um, learning problems we are looking out for, we're looking at accuracy, we're looking at maybe like your confusion matrix or things like that, or those sort of evaluation metrics. I think in the DevOps world, there are also other metrics we look out for, like, you know, the system metrics. What's the case with uh, with ML, like uh, ML observability beyond just that model evaluation? What are some other metrics we should kind of look out for, or consider when thinking about observability?
2: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad you you keep bringing it back to like the traditional DevOps and, and software mm-hmm. 1.0 oh, observability, because I, I honestly think a lot of MLOps is just catching up with things that, that DevOps has known forever, right? Like DevOps has known for years that in order to be able to do observability, the three the three pillars of observability are uh, traces, metrics, and logs. And this is really something that we're just starting to catch up with on the MLOps side. But I think there are some important distinctions between the problems that we solve in MLOps and the traditional DevOps problems. Because I I think the problems that we're solving with MLOps are actually a superset of the problems in DevOps. Like for DevOps, you want to know, you know, is my system up? What's the response rate? What's the response time? Am I hitting my SLAs? Obviously, we care about all of those things with a machine learning model, right? Like my machine learning right. model is making its prediction slowly. My Netflix won't load, my Uber won't be able to tell me what an ETA is. Like it needs to be up and we need to be able to do application performance monitoring in the classic like observability sense. But the difference is machine learning models are also, I don't want to say non-deterministic, but they, they have a greater degree of dynamicism in them because they're fundamentally relying on processes from the real world that are constantly shifting and changing. So with that in mind, when doing uh, machine learning monitoring, in addition to the problems that you need to solve in devops like you know is is my machine learning model still making predictions you also want to know is it making good predictions and that requires tracking metrics like is my input data drifting you know is my f1 uh, is my f1 score going down um, all of these different things and honestly like as an industry we're still kind of coming to coming to like, conclusions as a group about what is it that we need to be monitoring for all of these different types of models.
1: Mm, That's awesome. I think we have a question from the community.
0: We do have a question in chat, a sort of fundamental question. What is the difference between observability and monitoring?
2: Yeah, great question. And honestly one that like there could be PhD philosophy thesis books written about, because this is like such a topic of conversation that we have all the time. To me, and when when I talk about observability and monitoring, monitoring is a continuous system that lets you know when there is a problem. Observability is a human in the loop root cause analysis system that allows you to determine what the problem is in order to solve it. So like, this is a little bit abstract, let's be more specific. I've got a machine learning model in prod, it's chugging along, making predictions, whatever. So I, I've got both monitoring and observability set up, set, set up on it. You know, maybe with Y Labs, maybe with our open source Y Logs, maybe with something that I've built out myself. Now my monitoring will tell me, hey, Danny, you have a big spike in the number of nulls all of a sudden in your input data, and as a result, your predictions are not as good as they used to be. Okay, this is really useful information, right? This is great. But now I need to go into my observability solution, into my platform, and after in response to this monitoring alert, I need to be able to debug and root cause analysis, why are there a bunch of nulls, and find out, oh, it turns out that somebody pushed a a bad version of a data pipeline, there's like a a bug in the code, and as a result, like a typo, and as a result, there's a bunch of nulls coming out. Okay, this is great to know. Now I can go back and I can solve this problem. So you can see how like monitoring and observability are kind of, uh, they work hand in hand in order to solve problems. Where monitoring tells you that there is a problem, observability tells you how to solve that problem.
0: Great. Thanks, Danny. And thank you, Mustafa, for your question.
1: And, and that's awesome. And it actually leads me to a really crucial question, and which is something we, I think, again, in the DevOps space is always a concern. And it, even really a concern in both like the the data observability space as, as well as the ML space. And that's the alert hell, you know, in quotes. What does the alert hell look like, you know, in ML observability and you know how can teams navigate it? Because I think that's one crucial thing that teams face whenever they start thinking about observability. You know, what should I monitor? There are lots of things to monitor, right? You're logging everything. And then what should you think of? And then when you think about things to monitor, you know, what should you set that last for? Not just, you know, false positives and things like that. You know, how, how should... Teams think about this in this sense: uh, How should they select the things that are crucial for them?
2: Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and I mean honestly, there is no like perfect answer, right? Because the answer is it depends. Like it depends on your model, it depends on your environment, it depends on your team, it depends on all of these different all of these different variables. I would say that the impact of that means that you want to pick a tool or pick an approach that is both opinionated. So it has like out of the box ideas so that you don't have to do all of the heavy lifting of figuring out, you know, these are all the things that I should monitor, but also flexibility, right? It should be uh, opinionated, but also customizable so that you can pick the particular metrics or the particular things that you want to be tracking. I would say like some table stakes things to track that everybody should should track and, and monitor and observe on would be performance. If you have access to ground truth, I mean, that's ultimately like the, the holy grail, that's like the, the perfect thing to be monitoring because it's literally telling you how good is your machine learning model. A lot of the time teams don't have access to that. So there's plenty of other things to monitor. I would say input data drift is a really powerful thing to monitor. And the complexity there is how do you quantify data drift and how do you measure it and what metrics do you use for it? For I, I can dive into for a number of reasons why we think Hellinger distance is the the best metric for calculating data drift, but basically like some metric for calculating the, the possibility of the fact that the real world is changing, making your model stale. And then the last thing is you should be measuring for data quality. Data quality means a, like a bunch of different things in a bunch of different scenarios. You know, in, at Y Logs, we monitor for uh, the number of nulls, uh, cardinality changes, so like the number of distinct values changing in a column, schema changes, and the the incoming data. Um, all, all of these things that would indicate you know there's something going on with with my data that's not a data drift issue, but an issue with you know some tooling that's happening upstream.
1: Perfect, and and it leads me to the, to the second question and. I would I w- kind of want to ask, because this is something that I sort of asked a, a practitioner in the MLS community recently, and then they were like, there were different opinions on this. Would you consider data observability a part of ML observability, or these are like two distinct concepts I should think about whenever I'm starting to think about the observability space? Are there two different concepts or, you know, these are things I should think about holistically?
2: it's a it's a great question and i think like as an industry we are still coming to conclusions about this and it's great that there's like good discourse happening about it to me machine learning observability is a particular application of data observability Which means that when you solve for machine learning observability, you more holistically solve for data observability as well. And what I mean by that is like when you're monitoring a machine learning model, what you're really monitoring is data, right? Again, input data, maybe the whole data pipeline upstream of the model, but fundamentally data, 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 and then the output data, the predictions being made, and then ground truth or performance data. These are all data, right? These are just very specialized data that have particular schema. They have particular relationships, right? Like this is different than just data in a data pipeline because there's a crucial last step in it, which is this machine learning model that has some fundamentally different capabilities and, you know, some particular uh, attributes that make it different. So I would say like solving for ML observability solves more broadly for data observability, but the opposite is not necessarily the case. That like solving for data observability doesn't necessarily mean that you are picking up on the important things about a machine learning model, like, you know, the the F1 score.
1: Right, right. And, you know, still still on that particular topic of uh, of, of training, I, I'm kind of thinking, usually when we, and I'm thinking in the aspect of the angle of a use case where, In most cases, even if we are solving a supervised learning problem and then we are trying to monitor our our supervised learning use case, there are most cases where the ground truth will be delayed and we'll not receive the ground truth properly to properly estimate the model performance and things like that. How does observability cover for that particular scenario where the ground truth is delayed by a day or two, or probably even one month? For example, say a loan classification problem, you know, you know, how do we how does like observability cover for such scenario in terms of estimating the performance and you know not having to wait for the ground truth to be available to do that
2: yeah great question so I think there are three different answers to this question one is about estimating performance one is about waiting for actual ground truth and the last is about using the data that you have available so I'm going to walk through these one by one so the first is estimating performance and I really like talking about this one because it's the most bleeding edge it's the thing that like we're, we're still very actively developing as an industry So there are a number of different algorithms that you can use when you don't have ground truth in order to estimate the performance of a machine learning model. The one that I think has the most academic rigor behind it and looks the most interesting is one called Mandolin. So what Mandolin does is it basically slices and dices your data in a bunch of different ways and then allows you to create estimates of if I see my data drifting in this feature by this much, this probably has this kind of impact on on my machine learning model. Again, this is only an estimate, but it's cool that it allows you to know, know, even though it's just an estimate, this is how much my machine learning model is likely degraded in performance, even without direct access to these immediate ground truths. The second answer to the question, rather, because actually you do all three of these things in parallel, not, you know, one or the other or the other. The second is you accept your delayed ground truth. So, you know, a lot of machine learning systems are incapable of taking in, uh, sorry, machine learning, monitoring, and observability systems are incapable of taking in delayed ground truth. But I actually think it's very valuable because all ground truth has a certain level of delay, right? Like when you order an Uber, I'll come back to this example, the ETA prediction is made some amount of time before the trip is completed. And it's short, right? It's not days or or months, as in your example. It's probably on the order of like minutes or at most hours, but it's still some amount of delay. So when constructing or choosing a machine learning observability system, I think it's really important to, to create or to use one that takes into account the fact that your ground truth is going to come in late and is still going to be able to like back pedal that ground truth to the back propagate that ground truth to the to the observability system so that you can view it okay the, these are like the the two most concrete the last is basically you know even if you don't have access to the ground truth itself you can very often pick up on performance degradation just by monitoring for data drift in the input data and changes in the predictions being made right like if there are fundamental changes in the way that people are using a product or in the, the way that the real world is uh, generating data, then likely this is having some effect on your model and whether it's stale or not, right? It's hard to quantify. You know, We need to use something like Mandolin to be able to estimate that. But at least we know that if there are changes, those changes are likely impacting the
1: performance of our model. Right. Uh, we've, we've spoken a lot about these algorithms and then there's a good follow-up question from a team from Reddit. And this team is asks, you know, hey, we are getting familiar with monitoring in our, in our ML team and we are curious, what's the level of math and statistics required to get monitoring right for our project? So we're talking about data drift and, you know, I believe there are some level of math or stats you need to be able to know before you are able to estimate those properly or detect those. But what are the What's the level of math and stats required to to get this up and running?
2: <laughs> really valuable question. I think the answer is, it depends on the type of solution that you're choosing, right? Like if you okay. choose an out-of-the-box tool, right? Like something like like y Labs or one of these vendors that provides a, a solution, level of math is like arithmetic, right? Like you need to be able to look at numbers and say like, this number is increasing or like this number is decreasing. You know, you need to be able to like look at a, a chart and understand what the chart is saying. If you're implementing this yourself, I would say you need like maybe the equivalent of like an undergrad statistics understanding, right? Like uh, you need to understand what a distribution is, right? You need to understand like, here's what a histogram is. Here's what it represents underneath. You don't need to learn like particular, like you don't need to know what a Poisson distribution is. You just need to know what a histogram represents. And then you need to be able to understand the concept of distance metrics between two two distributions, right? And there's a bunch of different distance metrics that you can use. Again, we use Hellinger distance and I can dive into why Hellinger distance is cool, but there's also like KL divergence and a bunch of other metrics that you can use to, to basically calculate what the difference is between two distributions. But, you know, none of this is like pure math or set theory or even, even calculus, right? This is all uh, statistics right. probability theory that you can learn in your in your undergrad statistics.
1: Fair enough. Fair enough. I think we've been able to walk through that. Okay, we have another question from um, the MLOps community, and this person is asking, coming from a software background, you know, you probably know there are a lot of granularity with monitoring. I think we've mentioned something like this, but this person is asking, anyways, how do you suggest I work on capturing the big picture, you know, while not missing the relevant details when when it comes to like monitoring my ML system? And have you seen tools that take care of this, or do I have to figure it out myself?
2: Yeah. Uh, starting with the second question first. Yes, I have seen tools like this. I, you know, helped build one. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, there, there's ML observability tools that really like lose the forest for the trees and focus on trying to surface as many metrics and as many like graphs and visualizations and basically like barrage you with information with the hopes that you'll spend the time to like pick it apart and figure out the the right, most relevant piece of information. I would say that like y Labs and probably most of the other mature, vendors in the ML monitoring and observability space uh, do a good job of being opinionated in selecting the most relevant pieces of information and giving you like really high level views of model health and model performance health so that you can dive in and and debug at the place when it's appropriate, rather than giving you a ton of false negatives, right? A ton of like wrong alerts. I can't speak for, you know, most other tools in this space because most of them are closed source and don't have, uh, you know, it's not possible to interact with their platform without talking to a salesperson. I can say that like, at Y Labs in addition to trying to minimize false negatives we also try to minimize false positives and we we try to give people the ability to like tune the model tune the the model that we use to send out alerts and notifications so that you can you know really get the the right percent
0: feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30 second pitch of Neptune AI okay so we help with model metadata storage and management that means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app you can organize and display it however you want search debug and compare experiments data sets and models save your production ready models to a centralized registry and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any ML Ops stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show.
2: Of alerts for you. Okay, and then to the non-vendor, non-like tooling part of the question, which is like what are the the key things to really be looking for? I would say that like again, if you have access to ground truth, the absolute best thing that you can know about your model, is how is my model performing like literally is it making good or bad predictions right if you have this you have like 70% of the value of a machine learning observability or monitoring system when you don't have access to ground truth you know this gets harder and you need to you need to be able to monitor data drift and and the output and uh, and all of that I would say even, and that's just for monitoring, if you really want like observability, just model performance is not going to be enough, right? If we go back to the definition of like observability versus monitoring that I gave earlier, monitoring tells you that something is wrong. My model is not performing well. That's something wrong. Okay. But now in order to be able to debug it, I do actually need observability across the entire system. And I need to be able to dive into the parts of the system that are really causing the problems. So, you know, while monitoring, you can really just look at performance. If you have access to direct performance for observability, you do need to see the entire system start to finish.
1: And leads me to the next question. You know, what are the common mistakes you see teams making when starting out implementing like a ML of solution for their projects? Okay,
2: like level zero problem is just not doing it. Right, like inertia, not recognizing this as a problem that they need to solve, um, not being given. A lot of the time, it's like you know they they would like to be able to do this. It's just they're they work at a company and have constrained resources and aren't able to you know put into place these safe ML practices. So that's like the level zero is doing nothing. The level one mistake, I would say, is using tools that are not built for ML ops. Right, like. thinking that you can solve for ML monitoring by using traditional DevOps monitoring tools, you know, like like a New Relic or like a Datadog or like Grafana and Prometheus. These are all very, very powerful tools. They do their jobs really, really well. Their jobs are solving software 1.0, application performance monitoring and observability, right? Their jobs are letting you know like, Is my application down? Is it working? What kind of SLAs am I hitting? All of these things. Again, like as I talked about earlier, this is distinct or rather it's, you know, a subset of the problems that we face for machine learning models. So I would say the the level one mistake that people make is trying to kind of shoehorn their existing tooling stack. Beyond that, you know, there's like smaller mistakes that people make. I would say one is like not monitoring the entire and not getting observability into the entire ML system. Again, like to really debug a problem, you need to see the entire pipeline. You can't just look at the model at the end. That's a common mistake. I, I would say, you know, if you've gotten past the the previous problems, you're like already in a better place than like 95% of the industry.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And I think you've spoken about levels and I would love you to walk us through what does it mean to start, of from like say level zero. I don't want to use any tool. I just want to start thinking about visibility, and then how do I graduate from not doing using tooling, which we've not really to uh, so kind of using like tools, and then maybe all these other vendors. And how how do how would you how would you suggest I I go through that journey from just starting out thinking I don't want to use any tooling. I just want to monitor my system in the barest way, and then graduate towards that. How would you suggest teams do this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I guess like the the way to really get like the easiest version of monitoring done is just like calculate and store these things somewhere and visualize them with something. Like and the, okay. you know, the way that you do that is entirely dependent on your process. Let's let's just like take for granted that somebody's running in a Python environment. Okay, just like have a pandas data frame where you're appending new rows that are being um, input into your model and predictions that are coming out of your model. And then uh, if you have access to ground truth, save that too. And then you have this pandas data frame. Maybe you're like continuously saving it as a CSV. Maybe you're using like a SQLite database. The point is that like a monitoring system needs to have some kind of data store And then it also needs to have some kind of visualization, right? So you need to be able to take the data that's in your Pandas data frame or in your SQLite database or whatever, and then visualize it with like a, like Matplotlib or or Seaborn or Plotly, you know, one one of these tools that helps you to visualize data. And I, I would honestly say that like, this is already like a really good step towards monitoring an ML system. You know, it's immature. It takes some amount of like tooling and, and setup to do yourself, right? But it's it's nothing crazy, right? Like you, you know, mm-hmm. we could code this up in Python pretty easily.
0: Yeah, we have a question in chat from Wilson who is uh, saying he would love to hear your thoughts on why Hellinger distance is your preferred choice for measuring distribution drift. He adds that the way... He would typically do this is to use uh, Wasserstein Earth Movers distance. So he's wondering if he should consider Hellinger distance instead going forward.
2: Totally. I'm not an expert on distance metrics. Like I studied them a little bit in my undergrad, but definitely I'm not familiar with every possibility out there. I would say the reason that we use Hellinger distance and find that it works really well for our customers is because uh, the metric is uh, symmetric. So like it's normalized to be between zero and one, which is really convenient for monitoring. And it also has the the nice property of being symmetrical. It handles missing values really well, which is really powerful. Maybe Wasserstein uh, Earth Mover distance does too. I, I'm not sure. But like, the, I think this is also really powerful, the ability to take into account missing values. To kale divergence doesn't have symmetry, which makes dealing with missing values Kind of harder, but I'm not sure whether earth mover distance has the same problem. And then the, the last thing is like Hellinger distance is easy both to calculate. Like there's both out of the box tools and it's like, uh, arithmetically, it doesn't take a lot of math uh, under the hood. Like your computer is not doing a lot. So it's very computationally efficient to calculate, but it's also very easy to interpret. Like, because it's normalized to be between zero and one, it's really easy to understand. This is how much my model, or this is how much my data has drifted and really be able to like. Uh visualize and yeah, and be able to like compare you know changes in data over time to see when there's a big discontinuity and a big potential problem. Um, these properties might be there for Wasserstein uh, Earth mover distance too. I, I don't know, but this is why we use Challenger.
0: Great, thanks very much, and thanks, Wilson for the question. We do have another question as well from Nana. Uh, Nana, go ahead.
1: So for most of the distance metrics, it looks like the length of, uh, let's say, if you want to compare a feature which was in your training or tested to uh, the post-production data set, so the length have to be equal for the distance metric to work. Am I correct? And if so, what happens if like the, the length of, let's say, the feature in the training sets it's not the same as that of the test. What kind of uh, other metrics would be available to compare them?
2: First of all, great question. So again, like I'm most familiar with Hellinger distance now because it's the one that I'm interacting with the most. With Hellinger distance, they do not need to be the same length. Like okay. you, yeah, you calculate the the, di- the distance between these two distributions, but that doesn't require comparing what like one-to-one the values across the the two columns. Uh, I can't speak to, to other distribution or to other distance metrics and how they calculate in the case of different uh
0: different lengths. Okay, thank you. No, oh, thank you. Thank you, Nana.
1: Awesome. I think we we can come back to away from the stats, of course, to to some more very practical things like I think the testing side of things, right? How crucial are these, like, you know, when you're thinking about observability, you're running things like your data checks, you're running things like your model tests and things like that. How crucial are these processes to the entire observability process?
2: I think, you know, checks to me are super useful. I wouldn't classify them within observability necessarily, Mm -hmm. although I think that they help to solve very similar problems to monitoring. So like, for instance, when I when I think about you know the ability to put constraints on on your data, which is a feature that you know, y Logs has as an open source tool, or like Pandera similarly allows you to put constraints on top of your data. Or you know you can also create these constraints your, yourself, you know, in Python by just saying like if data exceeds one, you know, break and send an error, right? Like you can, you can do this stuff out of the box as well. These types of constraints, as an example of a data check are really useful in alerting you and in like preventing potential data quality degradation or other types of data changes that might be detrimental to your system. But they don't tell you, like like observability again, is the ability to understand what's wrong in order to debug it, in order to do root cause analysis. These don't tell you what's wrong so much as surface to you that something is wrong. And it's a different approach than like the monitoring, the continuous monitoring approach, where it doesn't like break; it just gives you a notification because you know these these are constraints that will like stop a system from running if if there's some kind of problem that that comes up, which is a, a useful feature very often. But is you know different than the continuous monitoring approach, where you allow a system to run, but you know that there's something wrong so that you can go and fix
1: it. Right. So for for the continuous monitoring to work. I think I used to think they like you need to have those checks in place to tell you, Okay look, there's a breakage or there's a leakage in your data set or something like that, or do teams don't have to do that to be able to monitor that so is that called monitoring in, in any sense?
2: yeah, I would say that the checks are like useful but neither sufficient nor necessary mm, for monitoring right. like Really, I would say what monitoring fundamentally requires, and observability too, they both require logging more than anything else. Mm-hmm. They require having telemetry artifacts that you can use to understand the state of a system as it changes over right. time, right? Um, observability is understanding the interior of a system based on its outputs. So you need to be right. creating outputs. You need to be creating like a, the artifacts about the telemetry artifacts about a machine learning system. Um, and that's via the process of
1: logging. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks for answering that. So there's a question from the community again, that was sent to us before now. And this person is asking, could you walk me through how I can think about implementing monitoring for a session-based recommender system? Do I have to think about, uh, do I need to think about performance measures and then monitor for that? Or is there some holistic thing I should you know monitor for?
2: I would say that, like, the monitoring and observability space is really mostly focused on classification and regression, and that we're still very much developing the best practices around recommendation systems. That being said, like, there are some fundamental similarities and some best practices that we can very trivially apply from classification to, uh, or classification slash regression to recommendation. Like, uh, changes in the data distribution of input data indicates some kind of covariate shift in the real world, which indicates that your model is very likely stale, right? Like the the canonical the canonical example of this to me is Netflix. And you know Netflix is one of the biggest recommendation engines ever. It's really, really powerful. And it also experienced huge data drift because of Covid, right? Like people all of a sudden started watching way more Netflix. To the point that Netflix like gave people money back if they you know weren't using their Netflix account often because they were pulling in so much money. People were watching way more Netflix and the people's habits on Netflix, the type of shows that they wanted to watch, changed. Right. So so this, you know, this big shift was very obvious to anybody. It's like, yeah, of course, like and anybody can tell that people are using Netflix more and differently than they were before. The more insidious thing that happens is when you don't have like, you know, a global pandemic but very slow societal changes that end up impacting the way that people use a product and people's preferences, right? When those types of insidious changes happen, you need to be able to continuously monitor in order to understand those changes. And so yeah, so that's the that's like the the data drift equivalent in a recommendation system. You can also think about how you're calculating performance within recommendation systems, right? I'm I'm not an expert on recsys systems. I primarily mm-hmm. install with and classification. Whenever I've done my modeling, but you know, there is there are similar concepts of model performance and of being able to tell you know if if a model has gotten stale or if a model is still able to perform well by you know inferring whether people are following the recommendations that you give them, whether they're like actually enjoying the content that you're recommending for them. In the case of Netflix or whatever, so you can you can still like similarly apply best practices from classification and regression, including stuff like data drift and like performance monitoring to recommendation systems.
1: Awesome. So I think there, there's a question from Vik.
0: So what are the best practices to monitor the data drift in a real-time streaming data for a forecasting use case?
1: This is a,
2: a great question and one that I think is like really under-talked about because it requires getting kind of a level deeper than people normally get into. So when we think about real-time monitoring, real-time monitoring makes a lot of sense for like a software 1.0 system, right? I want to know in real time, how is my system performing? You know, Is it giving people responses so that I can respond in real time or even have automated responses in real time? But what would it mean to monitor for data drift in real time, right? Data drift is not something that happens like from one individual prediction. Right. We could we can monitor for like for specific variable changes for, you know, having all of a sudden there's a bunch of rows that have a bunch of nulls in them or like a bunch of zeros in them. But data drift is about comparing distribution to distribution rather than data point to data point. And in order to have a distribution, you need to have more than one data point. So you need to pick a certain level of granularity that you're going to be comparing against. And you need to be able to compare against multiple levels of granularity. So this is is a little bit abstract. Let's get a little bit more concrete. So we've got streaming data coming in. Now, I can either batch that data into hourly and compare this hour versus the previous hour, or I can look at today versus yesterday. And a, a, a really good ML monitoring and observability system will allow you to change that granularity and to compare against any level of granularity, be it daily or, or hourly or even like weekly or, or monthly. But it's important to keep in mind that they're, like if anybody tells you that they're doing real-time data drift monitoring, they're not being entirely accurate because it's impossible to monitor data point by data point for data drift because data drift doesn't happen on the data point level, right? You have a lot of noise on the data point level, happens on the distribution level. So you need to be able to aggregate multiple data points into a distribution in order to do that kind of monitoring. Now that's for data drift in particular. Data quality monitoring is a really great use case for real-time data. And we actually have you know real-time data streaming capabilities built into Y-logs where we can take in Apache Kafka or, or other types of data streams and generate logs based off of those in order to monitor for data quality in real time. But for data drift, that's something that can only happen at a batch level because you need to be able to compare multiple time windows against each other really good question. And that's, yeah, that's a level of depth that's uh, like really fun to get into because most of the time the conversation is just me saying you need to be monitoring your machine learning system over and over again.
0: Right. Thanks, Satvik, for the question.
1: Awesome. Awesome. And thanks, Danny, for answering the, the question. And, you know, there's one thing that I think the I don't quite get clear and I I hope, I I know for sure that it's uh, the same for a lot of people and that's monitoring for like edge devices. So I deploy something on the edge, you know, how do I start thinking about observability on the edge versus when say I deploy to maybe like a cloud endpoint and then, you know, it's easier from there, but with the edge, I don't know, I don't quite know how to go about both the observability as well as even managing my model on the edge itself. So what's your opinion on that?
2: Steven, I feel like you're you're like going through the Y Labs website and you're like picking picking things that will help me sell my product. And I really don't want to be talking about Y Labs all the time. But, <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, is, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but I, you know, there's been this blog post kind of brewing in my head about the fact that Y Labs is the only observability system that will work on the edge. Because we're the only monitoring and observability platform that separates the logging component from the monitoring and observability component, right? Like, if you think about trying to deploy a full monitoring platform on an edge device, it's impossible. Like, not only does it take a bunch of compute and a bunch of resources to run a full platform, it also you know, will be difficult to access because it'll be on device instead of being you know, on the cloud or on your laptop. Conversely, by putting a logging tool like Y logs on the device, You can stream back the logs in in real time or in batches, depending on what the device's level of connectivity is. You can take logs off of the device and move them onto a platform running like SaaS in the cloud, like White Labs, or running locally on-prem or in some other environment. And you can bring these logs back to that platform and be able to monitor either across all of the devices and aggregate the data from all of the different devices, Or you'd be able to uh, take those logs and look at individual devices themselves instead of looking at the, the system in aggregate. So this is really cool and something that's really only feasible with logging, right? Because if we were dealing with trying to monitor raw data, get really expensive to be sending and, you know, probably privacy violating and a lot of other problems, trying to send this raw data off of device and onto our platform. But if we use logging techniques, then we can send logs rather than raw data.
1: Mm, that's um, that's awesome. So without Soarin, how can you how, how can you take this on without Soarin?
2: <laughs> I guess the the solution to do this without without Y logs or Y labs would be to like build a logging tool yourself. And like the really easy way, the really like simple way to do this would be to set like you know in your device. Basically, at the end of every day, you collect all of the data that you've inferred on from that day, and you generate some kind of summary statistics on that data, and then you send those summary statistics back to your platform, right? Because those summary statistics are both privacy preserving, so you're not potentially violating user privacy from their device data, as well as being you know, a lot more lightweight than sending back raw data. But I would say like, you know, there's already an open source library that does this really mm. well, you know, using a bunch of really cool math techniques to uh, really efficiently extract a lot of these summary statistics, including like the the entire distribution rather than just the, med- the mean and the median. So yeah, I, I would say, you know, you could implement this yourself or there's a cool open source tool that does this.
1: Yeah, fair enough. thank you for, for sharing that. And back to practicality again, uh, there's this particular question that uh, came from, Reddit and this person is deploying uh, an NLP use case. They, they have like a, an, an NLP sort of model in production. And yes sort of thinking about ways they can start implementing observability for that model. So where, where should they start from? Are there levels they should go through? I mean, you've spoken about something like this, but maybe being more specific about this use case might help this team.
2: Totally, I love talking about complex and unstructured data. I think it's a a really interesting scenario that really like doesn't get covered enough in monitoring and observability. Actually, myself and two of my colleagues from Y Labs and potentially from one of the companies that we're associated with will be giving an hour-long talk about specifically monitoring unstructured data or complex data types at uh, an event by the AI Infrastructure Alliance or AIA in I want to say. Uh, in a couple weeks, I think it's in like late, late June potentially. So we'll dive. You know, we'll t- we'll spend an hour talking about this at that event. Feel free to reach out to me if you want to link or an invitation to it. But the the like short answer is basically whatever people talk about monitoring unstructured data is actually impossible to monitor unstructured data itself, right? Like when we think about comparing distributions. This makes sense. I can take my distribution of my numeric variables and see how that distribution changes over time. But what would it mean to talk about how like language usage or text changes over time? Well, you couldn't talk about the text itself, but you can extract features or metrics out of that text and then use those and monitor changes in those. So we can say like what one very common, very simple metric is token length. So like how long is every word within this uh, this this document, right? And see changes over the corpus, uh, like in the corpus over time to see that words are getting longer or words are getting shorter. And this indicates some kind of changes in what's going on. That's like a very simple metric. There's more complex metrics too, right? You can see like changes in reading level. That's a type of metric that you can calculate on NLP data. Changes in sentiment. You can see like, you know, are people getting happier or angrier? Are people using different languages? Are they using different parts of the, the Unicode blocks, or you know, are they you know switching from using uh, English to Cyrillic, or you know, Roman characters to Japanese characters? Are they all of a sudden using emojis or, or something like this? Right, you can you can track changes like this. And one of the really cool things about the NLP space is the huge diversity of of use cases that that are out there for NLP, and the fact that there is no one perfect metric, or even a collection of metrics, that are perfect for monitoring for every use case. Which is why it's really important to find the metrics that are most important for you and be able to use a tool that lets you monitor those metrics. Be it, you know, token length or sentiment or reading level or you know where things are coming in the Unicode block or even like other metrics that I don't know about and don't even think about because I'm not an NLP expert.
1: Awesome, <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. I would love to come back to one like crucial topic in the in the AI ethics space. Now you know we hear. A lot of things about explainability. So, where's the fine line between observability and explainability? And you know, are there things that teams should think about consecutively? Maybe once I think about observability, think about explainability, or I should think about them like simultaneously. how should I approach it as a small team, you know, deploying like a handful of models in production?
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a really hot take on this. This is like. <laughs> This is something that's going to get me in trouble with other people in this space. I think that people completely mischaracterize the value of explainability and where we should be using explainability in our tool set. Like even at this, this IA event, it's about monitoring, explainabil- monitoring uh, observability and explainability. I actually think explainability is a little bit of like the odd one out in that trio. Because monitoring and observability are really something that you do once your model is deployed to production to make sure that it's able to still perform well in production. Explainability, most of the time, is something that you actually want to be doing while you're developing your model like explainability, what it comes down to at the end of the day is usually feature importance. It's either global or local feature importance. It's the other, you know, in general, what is my model using to make its predictions? Or in this specific scenario, what did my model use to make these predictions? And that can be useful. It absolutely can be useful at the monitoring and observability stage, because it can help you kind of debug or or prioritize certain types of alerts. Like if I've got data drift on a very highly predictive feature, that matters a lot more than if I have data drift on a, a feature without a ton of predictive value. But I would say that most, to me, most of the value of explainability really comes when you're still developing your model and are trying to understand, you know, what features should I be engineering more? What features do I need to be enriching more? What's making this model work or not work? And then I also want to talk about something else. And and this is another like rant that's going to get me in trouble with the MLOps community. But I, I have like a whole presentation and like a blog post that I've been writing about this that I'll be delivering later this year. So I think people clump together explainability and fairness way too often. Fairness has a lot more to it than just understanding which features a model uses, right? Like a, like a credit score, right? We know exactly which features a credit score uses, but do we know whether credit scores are fair you know, do we do we know whether they're potentially discriminating against marginalized groups, be they you know, racial groups in the US or gender groups or or religious groups, right? Like, do we know whether these models are fair? That's a different question than knowing which features does this model use. Because it's very rare that somebody is going to explicitly encode something like race or gender or religion or class or ability within their model, right? Most of the time, you know, none of us want to do something like that but we can still use other features that are really highly correlated with these protected classes or these marginalized groups and which therefore cause disparate impact on them. Again, this is like a whole rabbit hole that deserves more than like a, a five mm-hmm. minute answer to a question. And I'm going to be giving a, a talk about it later. If people are interested in diving into this more, please like feel free to reach out to me. This is a, a conversation that's very actively developing. But to me, I think much more so than explainability, the key tool to being able to ensure fairness is actually segmentation. You need to be able to segment according to a protected class in order to know whether your model is discriminating against that protected class.
1: Fair point. Thank you so much for, for answering that. And I think this is probably one of, one of the final questions. And that's it. What's the unsolved problem in ML observability right now that you think that we're it's still very far from, <laughs> it's still very far from solving
2: <laughs> The unsolved problem is how do we get everybody to do this? <laughs> like, <laughs> there are some interesting, like specific features and like, like specific problem sets that we're working on, but in terms of like improving the reliability, in terms of improving the robustness of machine learning systems and production. The thing that will extend, the thing that will make most models better is not like, you know, the most bleeding edge observability or monitoring technique. It's literally doing any amount of observability and monitoring, right? It's like in healthcare. If you want to save the most lives, you don't need to solve, you know, for some really niche, really advanced uh, cancer drug. What you need to solve for is like malaria or or HIV, right? These like really prevalent, really pronounced diseases. And I would say that the equivalent in ML monitoring and observability is not like individual particular features, but more getting everybody on board with these best practices of making sure that you are monitoring and getting observability. So long, long answer short, the big unsolved problem is getting everybody to do it.
1: Right, right. Awesome. And I think on the final notes, are there best practices you want to put out? You've put out a lot of you know, best practices today. Maybe we something we want to end on a good note, right? On uh, A take-home note, I would say. So what are those things you would want teams to look out for? Because again, this podcast is mostly focused on reasonable scale teams. These are teams that are a few number of engineers, data scientists, but, you know, they want to do stuff that works for them right they don't want to take out they don't want to take up uh stuff from google or amazon those techniques they want to do stuff that works for them so what are some take on practices you recommend for such things
2: observability and monitoring definitely Mm -hmm. do it make sure that you're doing this not just at the machine learning model but all throughout the data pipeline make sure it's complete and This is a little bit self-serving, but like make sure that you're logging your data, right? Like one of the worst things that I see is I talk to teams and they're like, you know, I actually don't even know where those predictions went. I actually have no idea where, you know, where this data gets stored after we're done with it. It's like, well, like how are you gonna debug a problem if you don't have access to historical state, if if you don't know what's going on? So I would say like doing these three things is going to put you at like the 90th percentile of MLOps. Yeah, of MLOps companies. And, you know, it takes some amount of effort, but it's like the 80-20 rule in effect. Like you can get 80% of the value by doing 20% of the work.
1: So we've come full circle to the DevOps, <laughs> the DevOps pillars of what I right now. Cool stuff. Thanks, Danny. Cheers.
0: All right. Great discussion. Before we wrap it up, uh, Danny, could you tell us where can we find you and connect with you?
2: Yeah. So right now I'm in Mendoza, Argentina. So if you guys want to come and drink some wine with me, we can do that here. (laughs) If you want to (laughs) contact me, you know, remotely or digitally. My LinkedIn, I'm really active on my LinkedIn. My email is danny at ylabs.ai. And I'm really responsive over email. And lastly, there's a Slack community that the the Y Labs team is growing for MLOps practitioners called the Robust and Responsible AI Community or R Squared. So you can join that Slack community and I'll answer your questions there. Our engineers, machine learning engineers, uh, data engineers, data scientists will all be there to answer any kind of questions that you may have.
0: Wow. Good stuff. Uh, It was very good to have you, Danny. Great discussion. Thanks for sharing your insight and providing really helpful and clear answers to the questions. So we'll be back again in two weeks, as usual, on the 8th of June. And next time, we'll have Fernando Barrera and Jakub Zavrel with us. And the topic will be data engineering and MLOps for neural search. So don't miss that one. Submit your questions in advance if you want on socials or in the MLOps community Slack, wherever you can get in touch with us. And catch up with previous episodes on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you use. Thanks so much again, everyone, for joining. Take care. See you next time. Thanks, y'all. MLOPS Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. We run it every other Wednesday, and you can register at neptune.ai slash events.
1: And then make sure to search for MLOPS Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcast. Click follow and don't miss any episodes.